Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic film. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... Uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, okay. yes, right. fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Yeah. Oh, so Directed good. by I... Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and it, there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for The 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you felt a great disturbance in the Force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission. So say we all, the complete oral history of Battlestar Galactica. And nobody does it better, the complete oral history of James Bond and Spymania. All available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. But like four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Passion ignites between Dr. Crusher and an alien ambassador. Beverly, you're in love. But a shuttle disaster leaves him in critical condition. You're dying. Help me. And I volunteer. Now, a shocking alien transplant puts two lives at stake. I am Odin. I still love you. I don't know who you are. Unknown mystery next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. This is Peter Holmstrom. I'm a screenwriter for the sci-fi TV show Pandora, as well as author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, a companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, in stores right now. And I'm Lisa Clank. I was a writer for Star Trek Voyager and Deep Space Nine, and I currently have a short story out in the Star Trek Explorer magazine. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. So much of what we define as normal and thus right in relation to gender and relationships comes less from logic and reason and more from traditions handed down by our ancestors based on religious views or cultural norms that are no longer prevalent. Star Trek has the immense pleasure of challenging these social constructs through the lens of science fiction. 
The ability to present debates on philosophical issues of our time disguised in the trappings of tales of aliens, phaser fires, and shuttle explosions. To those who don't want to listen, these episodes are just escapist fare from a galaxy far, far away. But to those who do, these tales can help to educate and inform and possibly alter your perspectives on the world around you. On today's show, we will be talking with one, about one of those very episodes from The Next Generation, Season 4, Episode 23, The Host. And we have here today in our virtual briefing room, the writer of this episode, Michelle Horvat. Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, thanks for having me. It's going to be a fantastic episode. I'm very much looking forward to it. So, Michelle, tell us, how did you first get involved with Star Trek? Well, get involved. I uh, got emotionally involved in Star Trek. I was born in uh, Chile, in Santiago, Chile, South America. And I would watch Star Trek in black and white in Spanish. Huh. Senor Spock y Capitan Kirk. <laughs> so I knew, I knew Star Trek uh, as a fan, uh, as a little kid. You know, the first episode I saw was the Let That Be Your Last Battlefield uh, episode. Mm-hmm. The half black, half white uh, race. And immediately I got it. Oh, yeah, like prejudice is stupid. And it was an immediate lesson. And uh, from then on, I just found uh, all of it stupid. You know, the idea of, of, of prejudice. Because uh, that show really enlightened me immediately when I saw it. And I was hooked. Uh, and so it was black and white TV and it was black and white faces that kind of didn't lose in its translation. You know what I mean? I didn't need color. Uh, not that they weren't in color. It's just that TV in Chile was in black and white back then. That's how old I am. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, I feel like uh, so much of, uh, you know, one day I would love for someone to write a book about like, the actors who play these characters in other countries because <laughs> like they kind of get forgotten <laughs> but for so many people uh that's how you experience star trek or 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 you know these these uh shows for the longest time and so those those are that it was your version of james c kirk was that voice <laughs> and, and i have to imagine when oh, you finally heard exactly. william shatner you were like who is this guy what is this? <laughs> yeah who is this dude, right exactly yeah fascinating sounds different uh from <laughs> from someone else's voice, exactly. And from there, were you just uh, spinning with the whole television industry and, and wanted to uh, wanted to explore it? Absolute fan of Star Trek. That definitely was the you know you know they say you choose Star Wars or Star Trek as your and it just I had an early introduction into Star Trek and it uh, it made sense to me uh, a world better than we had. You know, it made sense. To me. Then I came to America and uh, worked in uh, production associate producer, worked at Universal Studios, started writing, uh, sold a few scripts. Then I wrote a couple of Star Trek episodes, the Next Generation episodes, and uh, sent them in. I got a, an appointment to go in. I saw Jerry Taylor. And uh, one of my pitches was the troll story. And, uh, I can boast of saying that came all from me. That was the producers were had no idea that this was coming into them. Uh, I had a, a saltwater aquarium, and um, I had a clownfish and a cleaner shrimp. And I was fascinated by the what? Symbiotic relationship between them. And I knew that clownfish could change sexes. Huh. All of that was born of that. And I said, well, what if there's a humanoid and symbiont species that are 
symbiotic and it's not it's not the SETI Alpha 5 earwig <laughs> situation, but it's actually something where it can be beneficial to both creatures. And uh, that's how that was born. That's fantastic. Well, let's talk more about that uh, once we get yeah. right on into the episode here. Um, but first, let's uh, go down the syndication sizzle reel for this episode. Season 4, episode 23, The Hosts. We have, in this episode, two hostile alien races on the edge of war, two implied sexual encounters, two instances of gratuitous fake chest hair, one damaged shuttlecraft, one symbiotic alien life form, two surgical procedures, two ex-lovers who must feign loyal friend supports, and one kiss on wrists to end it all. Brief room, Vulcan salutes have to go to Jonathan Frakes for playing the dual role of Commander Riker and Odin. Frank Luz for reminding us just what a romantic lead from the 1990s looks like. Nicole Orth Palafincini for reminding us of what most of us wish the romantic leads from the 1990s looks like. And Gates McFadden for leading the charge. Warp 7.5 in 3, 2, 1. Engage. Dr. Beverly Crusher, personal log, stardate 44821.3. So what was your experience like going into pitch? Uh, nerve-wracking. Yes. <laughs> but uh, but uh, overall, very good. I, I love Jerry Taylor. She's a, a kind lady, so she made me feel uh, comfortable. It was, uh, it was terrific. I think the response when I pitched was what was most powerful. Uh, yeah. I saw in her, in her eyes kind of like a, oh, wow, we struck something here. Mm-hmm. She excused herself, went to the next office, came back, and essentially said, okay, we're buying. That's terrific. They had another script uh, that they were working on for a uh, Crusher love story, and they put that one on hold. I feel bad for the writer. <laughs> <laughs> but they put that one on hold and put this one uh, in the front burner. Uh, immediately, because I think they saw the potential of what it was, something different that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, Brandon Braga is, is quoted as saying that he, he found the quote uh, repulsive, which I think is a little bit of a misquote, not misquote, but just like misinterpretation of what he's saying. He's saying that like what intrigued them about the episode was the fact that on the face of it, most of us would presume that the story would be a repul- you know, a parasitic life form that exists in a human being. And then exactly. the person falls in love with a slug. Ah, and it's so gross. But, <laughs> but Star Trek, as always, uh, when it's at its best anyway, is able to uh, twist your uh, what you believe to be the norm and, and show you a different angle from it. And uh, so I think he was uh, saying that this is a fantastic pitch and a fantastic concept for an episode that they hadn't quite seen before. Yeah, and I seem to have uh, laid laid a seed that that's infected uh, the uh, franchise. <laughs> Absolutely, you mentioned the trill. The S nine, the this, the trill seem to have uh, propagated uh, all over the place. So true. That must be very heartwarming, and. Uh... You know, speaking of which, of course, they, they, there is actual camera tests that have been done uh, with Terry Farrell to try to emulate the look of the trill from this episode. Uh, you know, you could tell that like here they, they're emphasizing a forehead ridge, uh, whereas the trill in Deep Space Nine and onward have more of a uh, uh, dots that line the, the outside the color, skin. The color gradation um, along the side, yeah. yeah. Which I think is, you know, it's kind of a fair uh, change just because 
makes it a little easier, you know, for the actors. It takes just 20 minutes, but also you look at the camera test. When it's a regular, it's easier to, to draw dots. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Michael Westmore was on and he, uh, a few months ago and he talked about how it uh, just uh, took about 20 minutes to do, whereas I'm sure this would have taken, yeah. you know, an hour or two at least. Yeah. He was very nice to me. He actually showed me the symbiont. Uh, nice. He showed me the articulation and the fact that they painted it with uh, something that that gets affected by black light. So they used some black light to, to make it iridescent when they when, when it was entering, you know, it was being removed from Ladan and put into uh, Riker. Well, so I guess we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but let's, let's talk about it. Like, it sounds like you were able to uh, see the production through as well, which is very interesting. A little bit. That's amazing. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, very nice to see your words you in their mouth. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, especially for a freelancer, that's quite a quite an experience. I mean, uh, Lisa's as Lisa's talked about, like she, you know, her episode of East Coast Nine is, or even on Voyager, it's it's often writers weren't quite encouraged to come to set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I begged. <laughs> <laughs> in my most dignified way, I begged. Uh, you know, dream come true. Of course, yeah. Oh, it's totally worth it, though. I mean, to see, to walk onto a set and to see your words coming to life around you is is hard to describe. Yeah, and I've got uh, a few Easter eggs in there that are solely mine. Yeah. You know, names of uh, family members and uh, things, and the name of the star system. You know, it's my own. It's my own stuff. It's my own. Uh, message to myself that I wrote it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when you initially pitched the episode, um, was it a fairly uh, uh, formed out idea in terms of like what the actual story was or was it more of just the concept and then uh, fleshing it out later with, with the writers in the room? It was pretty well formed out. I mean, there were some change, structural changes, but it was relatively well formed out. They also helped quite a lot with, with structure because they were in the show and I'm on the outside. Um, but overall, it was, it was what you see is what I pitched pretty much. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so great. Um, and there's your name on, on the episode. Oh, there it is. That's awesome. And they spelled it right. <laughs> yes, it Because <laughs> uh, they didn't then the later this. How long did you have to write the first draft of the episode? Like two weeks, something like that. Oh, that's good. Along the lines of that. It's been a while, but uh, something along the lines. Two weeks, and then Jerry Taylor went in and and, and cleaned it up. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, they know this stuff intimately when it comes to to working within the show. So yeah, very helpful. And I met the met the staff and we went to lunch. And yeah. Those free lunches are the best. They're they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, across the street from Paramount. It was a little taco place. That's fantastic. It's uh, it's you know, it's kind of uh, overlooked in a way. Just the importance of Jerry Taylor at this time. Like she was basically show running the show, and uh, the the role wasn't quite as defined as it is today. But like season four through uh, seven, she was basically the the one leading the charge, and so she would take. Uh, a lot of uh, showrunner passes on on some of the, the best scripts that um, Star Trek has. 
And you can yeah, really see, I think, the evidence of it. Um, I imagine what she brought, I, I don't know, but I imagine she brought a lot of like the subtle character beats, the kind of underpinnings of the emotional connections between the characters, things like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that whole, you know, you're, you know, you're, uh, <laughs> when they're doing their, their uh, fingernails, you know, Deanna Troy and, and Crusher are talking, you yeah. know, girl talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that was, that was, that was uh, a bit of, of Gary. Awesome. Yeah. Governor, ambassador. Yeah. You know, you're soaking in it, kind of a... Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, but then still the names, you know, like my brother's name is in there. How about Governor Lika? <laughs> this one here? Yeah. Uh, well, the beta and the alpha moons, I had done some research on the idea that one could uh, p- garner power from the gravitational waves and poles uh, of, of a strong planet. So I thought, why not have the, the inhabitants living in the moons as opposed to the planet itself? And so I thought that that would be an interesting, new, different approach to things. Yeah. So this came from you and not from the science advisor. The beta will eventually experience Th- that particular aspect of the moons. Yeah, I know that came from me. I'm kind of a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? And the I had a friend who is a psychiatrist, so I said, okay, what happens to a body if it gets invaded by? And he told me about isolophils, and, uh, and, and so I put that into the script as well, you know, because I had to show something that that the body was being invaded by something. So that isolophils uh, are the way the, the body shows that there's an infection, shall we say, or an invasion. It's so interesting, especially given the story point too, which is like you're rising the tension there. You know, you're, you're creating more and more oh, exactly. to Riker as he goes along, exactly. which is such a smart move. Shuffle to the surface. I would not recommend it. And uh, for me, the most important part was, well, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but the idea that I had to have a key that made us understand that Odan had moved over to someone else uh, with the Dr. Beverly. Yes. That was the key. Yes. That was in one word, you understood that he's now there. Yeah. And we didn't, I didn't want something clunky. I wanted something just emotionally that the audience would immediately say, oh my God, oh, he's in there now. Yeah. Perhaps it's perfectly normal it's so simple, but it's so touching and it's the exact right thing. You know, I think a lot of writers would, would want to do an overly complicated, you know, explanation and, yeah, and you just yeah. don't need it, you know, and you're absolutely right. It's like the, it's the best, it's the best way to do it. So this is, uh, you know, you're soaking in it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the first time we see that the uh, barbershop on the Enterprise also has a salon section. Has a salon, exactly. There you go. For Thanks. both genders. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do love the implication here that, like, Deanna Troy comes in here just all the time and, and it's like, oh, <laughs> you're here today. This yeah. is weird. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Just put it on. Me. Who is your favorite character to write for? Here. I don't. At least, um, at least not very often. Michelle? I, in this one, I like uh, Crusher's tension between what she wants and mm-hmm. what she can't 
reconciled herself from. So I, I like that aspect of writing horror. She so very much wanted this, but when it changed in the face of it, she wasn't able to. She wasn't able to reconcile that. Let, let it go. It's really a secret. It's such a good, good uh, Crusher episode as well. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about in the past how often the, the women on the show get a little shortchanged just because they don't uh, have. Well, I knew very well that she had not uh, pardoned the parlance, uh, gotten late. Yeah. <laughs> and, she had not had an intimate affair. I mean, you've got Picard, you've got Riker, they're always, you know, but she had not had intimacy. There was some aspect where maybe she and Picard had, what have you, but, but, but there wasn't anything for her. And mm-hmm. it was, I felt like it was, it was time for her to have some intimate uh, affair that, where she was challenged in that way. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted Riker to play interim host because they had never had an intimate moment. I am a grown-up and I know the difference. That's true. We didn't see R- Riker and Crusher together very often. Really yeah, Michael point. Piller asked me, because it has to be Riker. I said, yeah, it really has to be Riker. It really does. He goes, okay, okay. And you like it. I also fought for a kiss because it was not written as a wrist kiss, by the way. Uh-huh. It was compromised as a risk kit because, you know, <laughs> the 80s. But it was not a risk kit. And I'm sure no. we'll talk more about that as we get to it. But uh, it's such a good point that you bring up that, like, Crusher and Riker hadn't uh, had much interaction. And, like, it, in the way, it, you know, you could see especially Michael Piller or any of the other writers being like, well, it should be Picard because they have like this previous dynamic, you know, but like, it's such a smart move to say, no, it should be Riker because that makes it uncomfortable. Right. It makes it uncomfortable for the viewer too. Cause you're just like, wait a minute. No, this is, this is Riker. This is, this, they don't have anything, (laughs) but it challenges you. It challenges you as the viewer to be like, but that's because this isn't Riker. This is an entirely different, person now you know and like and uh don't judge too much based on external appearances and that's uh to the point of the entire episode an extraordinary person yeah both as a scientist i like this conversation here there is a little bit of tension knowing that picard may have some feelings for uh dr beverly as well yeah exactly Exactly. captain was this explicit in the script as well, or was it more Patrick Stewart bringing his own knowledge of, of the situation to... She is to remaining with Starfleet. No, I, I, I wanted to explore this area. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I wanted to explore this area. Just thought. Well, you... Because, you know, he's, he's, he's coming into his territory in a way. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. yes, there's absolutely that. Um, this episode was directed by uh, Marvin V. Rush, who uh, his first episode directed, but he had been the director of photography for a number of years and would go on to be the director of photography for uh, every episode of Voyager, as well as Enterprise and 45 episodes right. of Deep Space Nine. Um, he had a bit of a challenge in this episode because uh, this episode centers on Beverly Crusher in a romantic uh, uh, role, and yet she's also seven months pregnant. So the the actress is uh, Gates McFadden is. So they really had to find new ways to shoot the characters. Usually, the uh, eye line or the the center of the camera is a little lower with uh, showing more of the body. But here they really have to amp the camera up a little bit to highlight. I thought it was great because she had a glow. She did. That's yes, true. It's very true. 
and then give her that to overcoat uh, as well to kind of make it a little more flowy around the waist area. In five seconds. Right. And I think there you almost saw the baby <laughs> as she was almost. walking past. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit of a goof. That's great. <laughs> from the limb of the moon. Hail the vessel. I have visual contact. I don't recognize it. It claims to be an escort vessel. We have the uh, the requisite a uh, little bit of action for the science fiction show out there. Yep. But, uh, I never get to write the words engage, unfortunately. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you knew you had to kill the original host, but did you ever, uh, did you brainstorm other ways to do it? Or was it always like, it, it, this is the way it needs to happen? Well, he needed not, he, he needed to avoid the transporter. And I wanted to set a mystery as to why he's avoiding the transporter. And that that allowed me to give him the danger of being in the shuttle mm-hmm. uh, so that he could then be killed. Let's put it that way. Yeah, oh. yeah it was all about not getting on, on the transporter. Mm-hmm. Order, Captain. I'll bring her in manually. And here's Dr. Crusher on the bridge, which we also don't see all that often. Don't. Not often. No. There's the fake hair. That, that poor little chair there that doesn't really have a back to it. I wouldn't want to sit on that either. That just <laughs> looks very uncomfortable. Sedimentation rate is 29. Sedimentation rate, yeah, yeah. Seriously, like, yeah, all the stuff that I research my, my my friend the doctor gave me all this stuff to put in yeah except for the metrazine i made that up there was no such well it might be now there was no such <laughs> medicine <laughs> the cc's of metrazine whatever it just sounded nice uh it made sense. oh there we go i will say her reaction here is a little Less, I would be Hello. so freaked yeah. out. I would yeah. just be like, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> Instead, she's more Did like, I "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> so you talked about career-wise, how you had uh, written some scripts, you had worked as uh, a for Universal for a little while, but like, what was, um, you know for lack of a better question, like what did you, how did you learn screenwriting? Was it just by watching television and uh, through osmosis or, or did you uh, take some classes? What, what was it, your By doing it. Just I, by doing I, I wrote a, about a dozen scripts, definitely different uh, film uh, and uh, was uh, pitching around town for mostly comedies, but then you know, I wrote a, you know, I wrote some scripts at home, you know, for Wonder Years, for T27, for my two dads, for this and that, and just, uh, you know, like I said, I also wrote a couple of Dark Next Generation, just to kind of get ready for the, for the work. So, just a matter of doing it. Yeah, I read my McKee, I read my, <laughs> you know, structure books, and yeah. uh, just, just did it. Doing it. So, so wrote a couple of plays. So that's how I was uh, showing my creativity at the time was by writing. That's fantastic. But the man everyone thought was his father was just. And have you continued writing after this? I've done some writing. Uh, I 
became a documentary filmmaker as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also make lamps from uh, spare jet parts. I also have uh, bought homes and uh, totally redone them and sold them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just as long as it's creative, I'm a happy guy. Yeah. Creativity is the important part. I'm not uh, limited to, to writing. I love it. Other ways as well. Do you watch the current Trek shows? I have found Discovery absolutely mind-blowing. The risk is too great, Commander. Weigh it against the prospect. Yeah. And what they've done with the Trill. I've Finally, I felt like the potential has been met for what was possible with the Trill. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With Discovery. Finally. Um, because we as humans see sexuality in such a limited way, as you said in your opening. Mm-hmm. I mean, snails have both sexes, and they're hermaphroditic. They're, uh, you've got, again, fish can change uh, sexes. Uh, you've got so many, and yet we are so limited in our view of how things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And discovery really really explored it in a way that I found like, okay, now the potential of being fulfilled here. That is a big old symbiont. Look at that. (laughs) They, uh, they, they, I think very rightly kind of decreased the size a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like, Riker, you just don't got enough room down there, man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess we don't actually know what happens once the slug goes inside. Maybe it uh, liquefies. I know. I've written extensively about exactly what happens. Oh yeah. <laughs> the ritual, the the the, the ceremonies, the choosing of uh, the way it's they are chosen, uh, the religion around it, uh, the wars that occurred from it, the slug wars, the uh, like. Yeah. No, I've written extensively about. Uh, so I know. I'm closing. Did you share that with the next generation staff? I am not. No, because I was. I wrote that afterward. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. No. Yeah. The whole, the whole culture, the way the world was, the, the way the the first, uh, the first symbiont joining, uh, and the lore around it, the mythology, and wrote, written extensively about it. Was this uh, in appropriate? Were you able to come back and pitch again on Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, or was this? Nope. Uh, no, I was not. No, okay. I actually asked to, to pitch Deep Space Nine, and I never got a response back. Ooh. Mm. Sorry, but true. <laughs> you look a little tired, Doctor Beverly. And here's the Doctor Beverly. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good act out. Definitely makes me want to tune back in. Exactly. Exactly. Disturbing, Governor. But you must convince the inhabitants of the moons that I am Odan. I also just love this this costume too. It it just looks, uh, as always, it looks very comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Star Trek Star Trek casual wear just looks very very. (laughs) The man who stands before them. Both are merely hosts. Must have been kind of fun for Jonathan Frakes to get to play a different character for a while too. It is your task to help. Yeah, exactly. I will exactly. try. 
I cannot promise they will listen. They are more so it starts to wear on him after a while, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's flushed. <laughs> and Speak softly, Governor. He's doing this. I, it would be interesting to know if he was able to meet uh, with Frank Lowe's before uh, filming of the episode, or if uh, just to kind of learn how to emulate. Yeah, exactly. Or if they were just basing it purely off the script alone. Um, I mean, Frank Luz was no stranger to Hollywood. He had he had been uh, kind of a character actor in a bunch of different things. He played uh, probably this biggest role came in uh, 1989's uh, When Harry Met Sally in, in a small sporting role, but um, uh, but never you know never had quite the big smash hit role that would be familiar to anyone. But probably the biggest role I know him from is. Uh, playing a murder victim, uh, a ghost of a murder victim in um, one of the uh, weirder episodes of Matlock, which, <laughs> which <laughs> there was a, a haunted uh, haunted mur- uh, episode. That show got really, a lot of shows really in the 80s and 90s just got real weird at times. It was, it was great. I loved <laughs> it. Um, but then his last role came in uh, 1999's, uh, 1999 film Restraining Order, and he uh, now is pretty much retired from Hollywood. Making that Matlock residuals. A lot of money. A lot of money. <laughs> it didn't seem to bother you to remain silent yesterday. It never occurred to me. This is what I am. And this is also a good conversation about expectations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It's so very true. I mean, you could relate it in a way to uh, uh, being married with some or with someone who who undergoes a, a traumatic uh, injury of sorts right and like the nature of the relationship is altered right mm-hmm. and how the really the the dynamic changes from there i mean this episode came out in 1991 but like the world was just very different place you know like, oh, yeah. yes that was just 30 years ago but also that was 30 years ago and that's <laughs> you know uh, i mean we hadn't even had really a uh uh you know gay or lesbian kiss on screen yet let alone, you know, discussions about uh, gender rights and, and and things of that nature. Um, and even though Star Trek was pioneering in a lot of ways, this was still a product of its time. You know, Deanna, the first man I ever loved. I'm yeah, the button of this uh, episode is the, is the very end because it really brings the, the point home, doesn't it? It is, there's this like well, under, subtle undercurrent here too of like Deanna Troy knows that they're talking about someone that she really has been with and, and has, you know, feelings for as well. Right. And so like there's this Absolutely. sense on the actress's point of view where it's just, you know, she's wanting to be supportive and be this counselor who's there to, uh, to advise her friend Beverly Crusher, but she's also like, but this is Will Riker, and this is something that, uh, you know, I have an uh, emotional stake in as well. And you can kind of yeah. see this in the, in, the under, in the underpinning here. It's just great. But what was it I loved? His eyes? His hands? His mouth? They're gone. If that was all it was, I should mourn him and go Yeah, this is a really good scene. But it was more than that. I felt completely free with him, unguarded, at ease with myself. There were so many things that made him special to me. And where are they? Are they still here? Alive in Will Riker? 
I look at Will, and I see someone I've known for years. A kind of brother. But inside, is he really Odan? Ah, oh, help me, please. So what other sci-fi shows do you like? I've been watching The Expanse, which has been very interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just wrapped up its uh, sixth season. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I just finished uh, reading uh, We Are Bob, the first book. I started the second book. Very interesting. It, it, it reminds me so much of uh, science fiction is about mediating between the digital and the analog. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that is the case uh, with uh, We Are Bob. In a way, you know, this idea, what I call the, the single life uh, conundrum, mm-hmm. when a creature only has a single life, how do you extend it? You can extend it by, gee, putting them in, making, putting them in a computer, or you can extend it in an analog form, like having a symbiote. Mm-hmm. So this is an analog approach to having to surpassing the uh, single life conundrum because yeah. when you've got uh, how many generations in one creature hear those songs again uh, and also the so question that she's bringing up Beverly's bringing up here about what do you love about somebody and how much can they change before they're yeah. no longer them yeah which what's is, the essence that you are loving yeah, exactly. yeah. which is very very interesting question I just, I, I just have to say too I love Deanna's little speech here about about her father and uh it's just so touching and she brings a lot to it i I think it's fantastic yeah and i like that it's not answered i like that the questions are being brought up and it's not answered yeah yeah outline so so rarely so rarely are they are they ever answered we keep we keep searching for those answers so do you recall at the time, I mean, you wrote this script, was there any sort of, uh, as, as you mentioned before, we'll talk about that once we get more towards the end, but like in terms of just the concept, was there any sort of pushback by the studios or or was it just seen as like, this is a fascinating uh, science fiction storyline? Not much. Well, you know, with the writers, I, I first, I, I, I wanted a kiss and not a risk kiss. And I didn't, know about the risk kiss until I saw it. They just changed it, and that's okay. I I get it. They they have to deal with, I don't know, standards of practice. I don't know what what pushback they might have gotten, but uh, I understand. Uh, And, you know, there was a question as to why it had to be a female uh, that replaced Odan. To me, again, that was the perfect button to the to the story. It wouldn't really have been a story unless I had it hadn't been a female, in my mind. Uh, there was some discussion. I don't think it was. I think it was in danger of not happening, but I think there was some discussion around it. I definitely know that if it had been changed around, and if it had been, you know, a male love story, that I would not have flown uh, because two females kissing you would have been a lot more acceptable. And, and two males kissing even in the ring. It wise enough to understand that 
or people needed peace. Same as in uh, The Outcast that was written by Jerry Taylor. Uh, you know, there was, it was a female that was given masculinizing uh, prosthetics. It could have been a male that was given feminized prosthetics, but then people would have accepted because Riker would then have been pegged as maybe not as masculine or not as male. So, you know, it is the 80s, almost 90s. So they had to work within the lines of what was palatable back then. Yeah. But I knew what I was pitching uh, as a gay man. I uh, understood the idea of how limited we are in understanding of gender and our sexuality. And it was something I wanted to explore. No question. Now, I guess I, I folded it uh, under a symbiote, but it was something I wanted to explore. And they were very courageous to go along with it. Right? You could have said yeah. no. But like you said, the best of Star Trek does that, don't they? Yeah. I will consider it. But. Absolutely. And I think season four, I, I believe, was also the same season where that episode you were just talking about came out as well. So this was, okay, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was, uh, it was great that it was, that was being broached. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Just have your answer within eight hours. And for me, like, I, I grew up watching these, these episodes and, like, I attribute a lot of my own stances on, uh, these sort of issues because of Star Trek, you know, more, more than, more than anything else. And, uh, yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> you bet. His vital signs are overworked. Is Glad to have been you know, a little part. I, I did get some communication for one was very touching. It was a, a mom that had talked about her transgender child, how the episode made her understand this idea of uh, gender change and how it does the, the heart they were. It was very touching. I'm like, okay, yeah. great. Did its job. No. Ambassador, when you feel up to it, would you join me in my ready room? Of course. You, you gotta love these uh, fast-acting hyposprays they have here. It's just like instant <laughs> pain is gone. <laughs> I want one of those. Yeah. Don't we all? <laughs> At least for a little while. Pain's gone. Thank you. She is torn. I do love how in this episode as well, it's it Beverly is frame is is presented almost as like the audience surrogate from the 1990s, right? But like within the framework of the episode itself, you understand that she's conflicted because this is Will Riker here and and also just the whole the whole concept's kind of throwing her for a loop. But like when you step out, it's like, but this was also kind of reactions from a lot of people in the 1990s too you know and so it, right. it creates that audience empathy that um uh, can uh, be very powerful which is great i do love how picard here though is just instantly like yeah you're just someone else now and that's it it's never a question <laughs> he's yeah. just like changing uh terminology changing names with absolute straight face which i'm like that's that's really cool that's Casual Riker with his hair a little bit mussed up, not quite. <laughs> yeah. We have received information that the new host will arrive in 18 hours. Will you be all right until then? The medication Dr. Beverly gave me has helped. 
I will find a way to keep going. So I love how the lighting's a little different in this episode too. Like they do a lot of night. Maybe this was just an attempt to increase the romantic element or to maybe hide uh, Gates McFadden's pregnancy a bit more. But like there's there's a little more darkness, a little more uh, nighttime elements, which uh, uh, allows for some interesting, uh, different emotional experiences than most episodes. Well, it's more intimate lighting, isn't it? Yeah. That's what's going on there. It's always a fun throwback to with whenever Star Trek presents alien races that are involved with the Federation, but uh, the Federation knows very little about them. <laughs> and so you have, yeah. you know, in today's culture where everything's like mass communication and we know, you know, so much about everything at the flick of our it's it's fun, especially in the original series, they do this a lot where it's like, right, there's, uh, we know of this alien race, we have ambassadors, they work for us, but we, we really don't know anything about them. <laughs> Right. We've never given them a medical case, scan or anything like that. It's just like, uh, in this it. case, the Trill are very, very cognizant of the fact that they are not going to be accepted by because of the joint. So they are very circumspect. I don't think so. The symptoms haven't returned. They know that it's a thing that's hard to accept. Yeah. You know, who am I talking to? The slug? The humanoid? Yeah. So they, 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 keep, they keep their private yeah. or did. I'll be fine. I've been preparing. Which is fair, because like knowing uh, the Federation, they might ask questions about, you know, what are the host's rights? What are the, you know, this and that. And I imagine, you know, the times that they do, uh, they had put themselves out there. They probably weren't uh, treated very well. And I think that you see that even in like Worf's reaction at the end, he's he's a little like standoffish to the whole concept. He's just, he's, uh, yeah, you know, that's probably the clean on reaction to a lot of this. But and in my mind, it wasn't always monolithically accepted in Trill either. Mm, yeah, there are detractors. There, there are what I would what I call the singulars, people who believe that uh, the race needed not to mix. Yeah, so there was a whole bunch of Backstory again. Is elevated. The effects of the medication are wearing off faster. Every Where it wasn't, you know, because we think, oh, the whole planet feels the same way. No, no. It was pushed back in the planet itself. Yeah. Ambassador, it's clear you're in pain. You can't get through the next hours without help. The episode was originally named E Pluribus Uno. Mm. From many ones. But that was, you know, the Latin was maybe a little high flu. Conduct the meeting. It's a good name. We'll respect your wishes. So you said you were able to visit the set. Were you able to have conversations with the the cast or with the director before shooting? A little bit. Or, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. It's great. They were very, very kind. They were very nice. I'm, you know, I'm an outsider in a very insular environment. Yeah, especially I imagine at this stage of the season too, we're talking uh, episode 23 of fourth season, people were probably running on fumes a little bit. Um, yes, Mr. Wolf. 
governor and the two representatives have returned. I will escort them to the observation lounge. Thank you. Not feeling well, babe. I just I love this scene here. A lot too. of energy. Love this scene. It's so good. They really don't touch on it a lot, but there's definitely, you know, for hardcore fans of the show, it's like there's always this underpinning between Picard and and Crusher that like they don't ever explore it really. But if they wanted to, they they could totally. Um, and then in, of course in the series finale when you see that alternate future version of them, which is like, yeah, yeah, they were married at one point. You're like, yes, of course they are. Cause that's been there in the show the whole time. I don't know why, but I hate this thing. You can't call them trills, like with an S at the end. Never, never, uh, always singular, never plural. Mm. Always trill, because it is a joint, not trills. Mm, interesting. That was the thing for me. Was it worth it? Ambassador. The next time you look at a clownfish and a cleaner shrimp, you'll know where the trail came from. I always love how in these in these episodes you have you have the ambassador who's there to stop a war or to solve a conflict or something, but they uh, they never uh, you never see those negotiations because I'm always like, wait a minute, how are, how good are these ambassadors able to solve a massive conflict with just a easy wave of the hand? But um, which is probably fair they don't show those conflicts because that's that'd be uh, it is fair. But then you then you think about okay, Odan's carrying 17 generations. Of yeah. Experience with a, with a, the experience amounting to a thousand years. Uh, they got something up their sleeve that we might not know about. That's very true. I placed him in stasis. He's fine for the moment. You need some rest, Doctor. No. Occasionally bring it up in Deep Space Nine, but it's definitely not, um, I think, uh, delve too deeply into in, in the way that you're talking about. And I haven't really been keeping up with Discovery, but but it definitely sounds like they've been uh, diving into that sort of multi-generational aspect a little bit more. A little bit, yeah. No, really happy day. And in my private little life, I know a lot about it. <laughs> yeah. And here we have the big reveal. Wow. Yeah, that's rough. Yes. Good. Which even though, you know, at the time this was, uh, and especially with modern reviewers looking back, they, they kind of knock this ending because it is uh, not the the sort of both happy ending, but also not like the, the more, more progressive ending. But I would argue that like it does represent what the outlook was probably at the time and also like what uh, still a lot of people in, in our culture would, would see this sort of dynamic going so in a way it is an audience surrogate but it's presented in a way to say like beverly's not saying this is this is this is obscene or anything she's saying like i'm just not evolved enough yet one day 
hopefully humanity will get there, but I'm just not there yet. And that's, that's at least kind of a, a nicer way to frame it in the sense of like, yeah, one day, you know, the idealized humanity will progress, uh, to where this this could happen easily, but we're just not there yet. Yeah, it's a hopeful ending, yeah. you know? Yeah. I congratulate you. Absolutely. That would have cost many lives. Yes. It seems as though everything has turned out for the best. But she's definitely rocking the cold shoulder right now. And it's, um, yeah. she's yeah, uh, firmly back into uh, objective doctor mode, which is uh, tragic to hear. The other thing in play, too, which audiences need to remember is that like Star Trek was an episodic show. There wasn't this sort of continuing storyline that, that we would have today. Absolutely. So, like, yeah. You, you just, yeah. You, you know, the alternatives are A, you have this new character on the show as a lead, which usually didn't happen, or B, you had right. Crusher just leaving the show, which obviously wouldn't happen either. So it's like well, these are happen. these are two just No, it had to be buttoned up so yeah. that uh, it goes away and it's just as before, except with a few lessons learned. But yeah. that's you know, what episodic does. Yeah. Challenges the characters so the the cast and then moves on. Yeah. Perhaps, someday, our ability to love won't be so limited. Just the kiss on the wrist. So in your original script, it sounds like this was more of a passionate ending here. Well, she, 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 went, in for, she went in for a kiss, yeah. And, uh, and pressure allowed it. I mean, it's not like it was passionate, but it was, you know, for real, went in for, for a, a kiss in the mouth. As you should. I mean, the yeah, kiss on the wrist also, is definitely... I uh, also understand, because uh, I don't know, when he got in, right before he got in the shuttle, he kissed her in the, in the wrist. So that was a nice touch. And then there's another kiss. So that was a foreshadowing of yeah. how it was. Oh, yeah, that's very true, actually. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that, but... So Michelle, what uh, what's life been treating you with these past few years? You you got out of Hollywood, and uh, you know how's how's life been treating you during these COVID times? Well, I was a documentary filmmaker for a while. I uh, changed careers and uh, followed something that had interested me the whole well, for a long time. I became a psychotherapist and uh, worked with a lot of people in the industry. Actually. Oh, nice. It was uh, interesting to hear the other side of things. I saw, you know, folks in the industry from all sides, creative, uh, executives, writers, directors, actors. Was, uh, what are some of your films that we might be familiar with? Oh, um, my docu- there's a documentary called We Are Dad. It's about two gay dads who uh, foster five HIV-positive children in the 90s in Florida. And um, they're, it's actually very funny. I know it sounds heavy and deep, but it's very very heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Very very sweet. It's uh, very funny. And they did a a wonderful thing uh, against the hard odds 
and one of the children zero reverted, became HIV negative because he only had antibodies. He didn't have the actual virus. And they tried to adopt him in Florida block because gay parents are good enough to foster sick children, but not good enough to uh, be parents to a well child. Wow. So wow. that was the fight. And I went all the way up to the Supreme Court. This is the case where uh, Rosie O'Donnell came out because of them and mm. supported them. And uh, it was a while back, but yeah. Uh, and I was a friend of the family. I used to babysit those and I thought, something's got to be done. i got to tell their story. So I spent four years, uh, papered myself, edited myself, shot it myself, wrote it directly. And uh, won a bunch of awards and was on Showtime and uh, had a DVD release. And uh, now it's on uh, Amazon Prime. Wow. That's, That's great. Amazing. So it has a life. It has a life. Wow. Well, let's again, definitely check that out. Psychological aspect of things that are, that are, that are really fascinating. Psychological aspect. It's fantastic. By psychology. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. This is such a real treat. Um, it's, uh, it's always fascinating to hear, especially stories from the freelance writers of Star Trek, because uh, it's uh, such a unique yeah. experience. And um, uh, if fans want to get in touch with you, are you available on online anywhere? Or is... Uh, Gosh, I don't, I'm not, I'm much of an online person. That but, is uh, probably very yeah. wise. <laughs> it's a vicious place, it's a vicious place out there. Well, listeners, if you want to check out uh, his documentary, uh, if you could plug that again, actually, uh, what was the name once more time? We are dad. I mean, we are the two dads that are raising the children. We are dad. That's fantastic. And uh, on Amazon Prime. I'm on Facebook, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Well, listeners, definitely check that documentary out. And uh, obviously, if you want to pick up the Blu-rays of this uh, season of Star Trek, that's obviously very helpful as well. But um, so uh, listeners, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, we are uh, available to chat with at Inglorious Trek on Twitter and at Inglorious Trekspers on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, If you'd like to give us a subscribe on Apple iTunes, rate us five stars. That'd be fantastic. Um, and we definitely want to thank our sound engineer here, Mark Rivera, as well as, uh, his mentor, Bill Ritter and everyone at Electric Entertainment, including, uh, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin, who are our executive producers and our producer, Natalie Miscali. Um, so for Lisa Klink and myself, I want to say thank you very much for being here. And the briefing room is now closed. Scott, would you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.